Salam. Thank you, Hadia and Celine, for speaking with me on the History Speaks podcast. It is a pleasure and true honor to have this conversation on gender and Quran with you. For Muslims, as we know, Quran is the direct speech of God and therefore sacred and infused with divine power. For centuries, Muslims poured over the pages of the Quran to try and discern the various meanings of the text for their individual day-to-day life, for their spiritual life, for their social existence. Hadia and Selim, as someone who specializes in the study of modern medieval Quranic commentaries on gender issues, what do you find to be the main differences in the Quranic commentaries in the modern period? Does anything really change? Thank you so much for having us on. You know, actually, so my, inshallah, upcoming book, Rebellious Wives, Neglectful Husbands, I look at this question through the lens of women and gender specifically. And what we find is that the historical context in the late 19th, early 20th century invests the question of women and gender with theoretical significance in a way that was not true pre-modernity. And therefore, what I found is that modern exegetes are, are very much responding to this this contemporaneous reality in which they find themselves. And in many ways, interestingly, the tafsir, their commentaries, becomes sort of this dialectic where they are not only interpreting the words of the Quran, but they're also engaging with certain debates that are happening in their societies. In fact, I look at three different commentaries, and what I find is that each one of them is responding to a very specific debate. So, for example, you know, Muhammad Abdul Rashid Rida, the co-authors of Tafsir al-Manar, you know, they are responding to, in some ways, you know, Christian missionary and colonial criticism of Islam's treatment of women on one hand. But interestingly, they're also in some ways critiquing Muslims themselves, right? And especially with Abdo, you see that he sort of internalizes that colonial gaze and says, you know what, we jurists, Muslim jurists have made things difficult for women and we need to reform you know, push for certain reforms. But there is this dialectic happening in the tafsir itself. And then like with Qutb, Sayyid Qutb, the author of Fi Dilal quran he is responding to the liberal secular Arab who has in some ways internalized some of this colonial rhetoric of Islam being an obstacle to women's progress. You know, and that's probably a function of where he is in history as well. You know, he's writing, you know, after 1950 up till 1966, and at this time, you know, the modern nation state has kind of fully developed. And, you know, there is this kind of liberal modernist agenda being pushed by indigenous Arabs. And so he's responding to them. Muhammad al-Tahir ibn Ashur, who is also kind of mid-20th century at the time that he's writing a little bit after, there is also a dialectic going on in terms of women and gender. But I find that it's more a response to the, to the classical tradition. Mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so he's very much in some ways a guardian of the classical tradition, but he's also responding to it and um, pointing out in very subtle ways where he thinks the classical tr- tradition got it wrong in terms of women and gender. So in, in all three, we find this sort of dialectic. And I think that's what I found to be very different than the medieval period where this question of women's rights and women's treatment in Islam was just a non-issue. It wasn't mm-hmm. really something that you would you know, invest any sort of stock in trying to defend. Going off that question and just hearing you provide that 
window in time. It also makes me think about how the contemporary period is adding another layer, even onto the question of you know, what is tafsir, because the, with this merger, especially coming out of the English language and other European languages, the merger between the academic study, which is where a lot of uh, Muslim intellectuals have found a home, and then more traditional modalities of tafsir, there's a, a sort of blending of the commentary genre, you could say maybe a, a stretching. And the wonderful thing about that is that it allows for sort of not just new perspectives, but a new way of taking the Qur'an, not as much verse by verse, but more thematically. And so I'm looking forward to seeing you know, where the future takes us in, in this regard and how well the commentaries that have been coming out of the academic tradition that are more thematic, how they'll eventually in terms of a wider Muslim audience, have some, uh, hopefully, some staying power like some of the more classical tafsir have been able to have staying power. Thank you, Celine and Hadia. I really, like, I agree in the sense that there was a change that happened over time, which is the woman's question became a really important question, especially post-colonialism. And then what we have within the last two or three decades, this sort of change in tafsir for more like worse to worse to thematic. It is interesting. In my own work, I look at two women exegetes, Farat Hashmi, who is a, a Sunni scholar and preacher, and Nusrat Amin, who is a Shia exegetical scholar. And it's interesting that they at least do not toe the feminist line, and they also do not apologize for failing to do so. And they, interestingly enough, again, do not differ in their interpretations from male exegetes, which is fascinating. But maybe it can be explained by how such continuity is the initial price for being included and being considered as, as authorities. How would both of you situate your scholarship along the spectrum of Islamic feminism or Muslim theology? Would you identify with either and why? For me, coming out of just to be honest, a convert background, I already you know, have a Western frame of mind. That's how I've sort of been educated for most of my life. And so when I think about explicitly identifying as a feminist, I think it could cloud the reception of my scholarship among some of the audiences that I would like to reach. And this is on the one hand, because feminism has in some ways been entangled problematically with discourses of women's liberation that put Western women above other women, above Arab women, above South Asian women in a sort of cultural hierarchy. And so I'm very careful that, especially when I am writing for an audience that is maybe recovering from colonial traumas, that identifying as feminist is problematic. It doesn't help my work and it could reinforce some of the ideas about Western women's superiority. And so for those reasons, while I think there's great benefit that feminist movements have brought in terms of thinking about women's solidarity and thinking about issues of justice as they impact the socially marginalized, and I, I do take inspiration from a number of feminist thinkers. Bell Hooks, who just recently passed away, is someone who comes to mind looking at how she really 
inserted herself into conversations and changed the conversation because of naturally who she was as an as an African American woman scholar. And so there's so many ways in which I think we can be inspired by feminist thought, you know, as as contemporary women, without necessarily letting the platform of feminism kind of overshadow our own work and our own desires to be nuanced in in ways that if we're writing for a feminist audience per se, there would be maybe boundaries to have to be more ideologically feminist and maybe in, in cases it wouldn't allow us to actually represent what the Quran was saying, for instance. And and mm-hmm. so that that division is something that I've always had to tiptoe around a little bit because I also want my work to speak to an audience that cares about justice issues and that is embedded in a feminist perspective. Uh, so I'm trying to appeal to both audiences without letting my voice get overshadowed by any um, strong ideological perspective. Yeah, I see that actually, Celine, very clearly in uh, your your book, Women and Gender in the Quran. I think you do a great job of sort of navigating that balance. I actually teach a little bit on Islamic feminism, and I understand and I sympathize with some of the Muslim, what would you call it, discomfort with feminism itself as a label. But I also think that to some extent, there is a misunderstanding of what feminism is. And I think within the Muslim community, if I can sort of, you know, put that critical lens on, is that there tends to be a lack of appreciation, I think, for the evolving nature of feminism and the evolving nature of transnational feminism itself. So transnational feminism itself has transformed in such a way to allow indigenous people in different parts of the world to claim for themselves what feminism would look like, to claim mm-hmm. for themselves what the priority should be for people who care about women's rights and gender justice and equality. And these are things that, in my opinion, are very much inherent to the Quran itself. You know, the equality of all human beings, the idea of justice, you know, the idea of God as being the ultimate embodiment of justice, right? And so in my humble opinion, I feel like by shying away from feminism, we sort of concede that this is sort of a Western enterprise and that we as Muslims have nothing to say or contribute to this very important discursive framework. And therefore, I think transnational feminism gives us a gateway as Muslim women, as people who believe in the Quran and are invested in the Muslim tradition to say, you know what, our feminism, Islamic feminism would look different. We do not believe religion or let's say specifically Islam and feminism are mutually exclusive in any ways and that we can articulate a form of feminism that is aligned with our religious beliefs and our priorities. And by the way, you know, these priorities may look very, very different, as Celine noted, than the priorities of Western feminists. And, you know, I I note this all the time to my students, for example, when we look at Laura Bush's address in 2001 about the plight of Afghan women, you know, and she's talking about how, you know, they're, they're not allowed to listen to music and they can't wear nail polish. And I'm like, let's just think for a second, like, do we really think those were the priorities for women who didn't have access to healthcare, who couldn't send their kids to school without fear of a bomb or a landmine or something killing their children on their way to school. And, you know, for women in the West Bank territories, for example, right? 
political priorities are very much embedded in the feminist agenda. And I think if we are courageous in sort of claiming that and saying that is very much part of feminism is like the autonomy and independence of an anti-imperial agenda of these Muslim communities, maybe we can shift the discourse. Maybe we can actually like make a dent in what transnational feminism looks like for women in occupied parts of the world. Thank you, Hadia and Celine. I do sort of agree that lay Muslims have not been able to sort of acknowledge the evolving nature, as you put it, Hadia, of feminism and how that it can be continuous to our own tradition. And we don't need to be stuck in its history, which was where colonizers appropriated feminism for their own cause. And that made it very problematic for Muslim women to take up the cause of feminism. But I think I also sort of think we need to take seriously what Celine was trying to say, which is that sometimes some forms of feminism can be divisive and they can create epistemological violence. I have a particular question for you, Hadia, which is I was thinking about that there is a plethora of literature in both academia and the media on verse 434, which is one of the main verses that you work on. And how do you approach this verse in your work? And what's something that you would tell your audience about the verse that hasn't been stated before or hasn't been stated enough? Or as we were talking, has it been stated from the Muslim feminist lens enough? So one area where I'm attempting to intervene is to sort of reclaim a space for the medieval Muslim commentaries, so Quranic commentaries. And I feel like there's sort of been a trend in contemporary Quranic studies to some extent, to some extent, but specifically when it comes to women and gender in the Quran, to sort of dismiss the tradition, the Quranic tafsir tradition. And a lot of it is based on a priori assumptions that it's you know monolithically patriarchal, that it's misogynist, and, and all of these different claims. And of course, I'm not denying that patriarchy is very much there in many of the medieval commentaries, but I also would say that there's a lot the tradition can offer. And even when we look at, you know, verses that have spurred a lot of controversy, like verse 434, there seems to be, in my opinion, in my sort of reading of contemporary literature, this notion that throughout Muslim history, medieval commentators have all read this verse in a very literal, straightforward way. And it's only the modern period that we're like saying no to a straightforward reading of this verse, which is really not true. It's, it can't be substantiated by reading the medieval commentaries. We find that actually exegetes displayed discomfort with the idea that a man could just hit his wife, even as a third procedural step, right? And we find that they impose sort of limitations, but even in the medieval commentaries, of course, this is not the norm. We can say, uh, you know, there were a few who just said, you know, based on the hadith, we would say no, that this is not a verse to be implemented, right? That this is not a, a prescription. They read it in different ways, that it's actually maybe perhaps a karahiyah, like a some, something that's disliked by God. And that it takes a certain kind of sophisticated hermeneutic to understand the verse in that way. And one of the earliest mufassirin and scholars to read it in that way was uh, Atta ibn Abi Rabah from the second Islamic century in Mecca, yeah. who was a mufti of Mecca, who literally said that this verse was misunderstood. And he's saying this in second century Islamic Amazing. Mecca, right? Saying that he felt his people around him were misunderstanding the verse. And he said that the husband could get angry at the wife, but could not hit the wife. And also you have based on this, for example, Abu uh, Bakr ibn al-Arabi, the Andalusian exegete, 
who takes that opinion and says, yes, you know, for this reason, a man should not hit his wife, regardless of her new shoes. And regardless if the first two procedures don't are not effective. And then you have, you know, of course, in the contemporary period, Ibn Ashur sort of taking this opinion as well. But even Fakhreddin al-Razi, you know, who was a Shafi scholar, taking a, a position that, yes, it's preferred that a man never hit his wife, regardless of the situation. And so what I find is that there's a lot within the medieval Muslim tradition to kind of build on in our current efforts to revive or find that egalitarian ethos in the Qur'an. So I would say, you know, instead of completely dismissing this genre of tafsir, we should sort of try to dig for the treasures we can find within. (laughs) Yeah, once I read your dissertation, I really started thinking about like the significance of how you are so critical in reading classical commentaries and trying to understand that, you know, all of them are not homogenous. And maybe that some scholars with maybe not thinking of it in the terms of like terms we understand, which is feminism, but at least they were trying to say that the literal is, if something is literally permissible, that doesn't mean it's ethical or moral. Celine, I have a question for you, which is in your work, what were the different tropes and themes that you uncovered in your research of women in the Quran? What are the values that are constantly demonstrated throughout the use of female narratives? How central are women and girls in the stories of revelation that you thought about and wrote about? Before we go there, just a note on 434. And I'm thinking about this from the practical context of working in communities. The way in which I often encounter people asking me as someone who studies the Quran about 434 is actually that they heard about this verse, not necessarily from their own exploration of the Quran, but actually from polemics that are out there in the wider cultural context. So it it goes to show something about Islamophobia that I wanted to sort of highlight and and just maybe underscore. And, And that is to say that so much of the things that have been made problematic in our tradition, if we would take a traditionalist point of view, meaning if we would dig back and see our own uh, intellectual history on it, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't really be problematic. So it's points of the, the Quran that people uh, who are coming without any background or expertise in Islamic studies have an idea that we just are non-thinking and taking things absolutely literally. And when you stop to say to, you know, maybe an Islamophobic audience, actually, we don't always read every verse literally. Some verses are read literally and others aren't. Just that level, and I've seen it because I've done so many like Islam 101 programs, kind of faces glaze over. Like, you know, <laughs> they don't just read the Quran, you know, completely literally. And and we've talked about how stereotypes can just be ingested. I think this is one of the problematic areas that if our young people aren't educated in their own tradition enough, they might actually have this come up as a, a crisis of faith sort of moment uh, when it need it need not be. That's just kind of a, an illiteracy about our own tradition that is not just among maybe non-Muslims or non-specialists, but it's even in our own communities. Uh, but it's not sufficient. You will hear on on 434, people explain this verse to Muslim audiences and say something like, you know, it is a third step or, you know, these are sequential. And I think as 
Muslims who are embedded in contemporary communities of practice, we have to be able to give more sophisticated answers, but they can't be so sophisticated that we lose the audience. How do we explain our scriptures in a way that is accessible? To transition that into you know, your question about my own project, that's part of what I set out to do in that project because I realized there were so many rich resources for demonstrating how women's intelligence and spirituality and wisdom is in fact demonstrated in the Quran. And I gravitated to stories because that's an a genre that people can connect to easily. So I was thinking about my work, not just making a contribution to the academic studies of the Quran, but I wanted it to be work that your everyday Muslim could pick up and could find something in there to, to reinforce their own spiritual kind of quest or, and, and questions. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that with 434, if I'm being 100% honest, it's, it, it is, as a practicing Muslim woman, something really hard to read. And uh, it's so deeply embedded in our culture. So from Pakistan, I feel like this is where some of the male attitudes come from because they find a particular kind of valence in the Quran. And I do think that a lot of work needs to be done before it can sort of dissolve and go away. And some of it has to be done from like, we're not reinventing the Quran, but it can be seen in many different ways. And here are classical scholars. And there's, I think this is also a sort of reaction to colonialism where we really we are very afraid of a break, right? And we like want things to be continuous, which I agree with for the most part. If I can just tag on and also add something that is, Selena, I mean, I think to your points, you know, the idea of the role of Islamophobia in kind of why we're paying so much attention to one verse out of over 6,000, you know, two mm-hmm. verses of the Quran is definitely something worthy to mention. But I also find it a problem of how we understand the role of texts in Muslim societies that we want to sort of absolve humans of their behavior and blame things on their texts, right? And we see this like with this question of violence in Islam, right? Or Muslims who perpetuate or inflict violence, right? Where we want to sort of look for that verse, that verse that we can blame for the terrorism of human beings who have decided, right? And to inflict violence on other human beings. And, you know, human beings are really complex people that the idea that you can reduce the action of a human being to a single verse in a a single passage in a text is really flawed. And I think it also equally applies to the problem of domestic violence. I mean, domestic violence, as we know, is a universal problem that women face, and you know, and even men, um, you know, in all cultures, in all religions, in all geographies. But when it comes to Islam and Muslim communities, we somehow, both, you know, within and without the community, we we want to say that it's this passage in the Quran that somehow is playing a role instead of looking at the psychology, you know, and the social, cultural context of these people, specifically the men who are perpetuating violence, right? And trying to understand what are the other factors contributing to this violence, because it's very reductionist for us to say, you know, oh, it's their understanding of 434. That, that you know, that's, I just wanted to kind of add that part to it. <laughs> no, that's so important. And it's also, it's a reduction of the ethical tradition too, to 
not realize that any given verse or any piece, any hadith, it's in the context of a broad intellectual tradition, right? And that's also a point of of reduction almost. And I think sometimes too, the way we maybe encounter, we meaning people who have done Islamic studies in sort of a, a Western tradition, we sometimes encounter bits and pieces without having this holistic framework. So you might have a an undergrad student, let's let's make her a woman, who comes into a class on Quranic interpretation and you might have one lecture looking at 434, but maybe this student hasn't even really had a background in what is the Islamic ethical tradition. How do all these different sources of knowledge, you know, inform one another? You know, what what is the relationship that living practicing Muslims have to a really vast you know, commentary tradition as well, right? It's not that we read one piece of commentary on one verse and that's we, we're forced to kind of believe in the principles that we find in the commentaries too. So there's a lot of the way that I think our young people, I'm thinking, you know, specifically in, in kind of Western societies where a lot of people do go to college and take courses on Islam especially as people who work in universities you know, as Muslims, really have to think about how the different aspects of the curriculum are introduced and when and how do kind of these courses that are just really piecemeal courses, how, how do they come together to actually give someone a sense of what it means to be a member of their you know, Muslim tradition, their Muslim community? What does it mean for them to... You'll be a part of reading these, you know, either whether they're ancient works or, or more contemporary works. And so that space is sometimes, maybe that's the space of the chaplain or something at the university, but it's really, it might be something worth thinking through with, with like more depth and rigor, like among, among, particularly among Muslim academics. Definitely. I mean, I find even like in classrooms, especially with Muslim students, I find it even when you try and sort of give them the context, try to trace the history, try to complicate and nuance the understanding. I think a lot of young people are just, especially when they're women, and now I think a lot of men too, are left with this question, why does it even exist? And I, I think that we need to like speak about this, like why would God have such a verse? What are we supposed to understand about our agency? Again, I think something that I was trying to say that a thing can be permissible, but is it ethical? Is it moral? And how should we think about our agency in such an ethical universe? Thank you so much, Celine and Hadia. The next question I have for you both is, how do you think your work informs the field of women's studies, specifically as it pertains to Muslim women or women in the Muslim world? That's an important question. I would like to Inshallah, when my book is out, I would be very open to any feedback readers have in terms of what could be improved and what could be changed. And what I'm hoping to do is, you know, on, on multiple levels, of course, there are various audiences I'm trying to address through both the book and obviously previous, you know, publications I've done. But one is to instill confidence, you know, in the average Muslim, um, mm-hmm. in their own tradition, you know, trying to kind of, in some ways, give people the tools that they need to kind of begin to access this tradition, right? So instead of it seeming like just a plethora of names, like, you know, Al-Tabari, Al-Zamakhshari, even Kathir, and, you know, for the, the average Muslims, like, you know, who are these people T- trying to, you know, give some sort of 
context, both historical context and as Celine mentioned, you know, placing them within the intellectual tradition, where do they belong? Who are they? And trying to give people the tools they need to be able to read and access the tradition themselves and become sort of literate in the Muslim tradition itself, this intellectual, this very rich, pluralistic intellectual tradition, you know, that I feel like we have as a resource and as an asset. To your point, Roshan, I love that you mentioned complexity, because this is so true. And I think you both mentioned that the tradition is very complex. And I wanted to also bring to attention the complexity within the Muslim tradition that there hasn't been one single way of understanding any particular verse. There's been a plethora of ways, and a lot of it is based on the you know, external sources that we are applying to read the text. And so one thing I want to also add to this is one of the issues I'm very kind of concerned about is where does androcentrism or where does patriarchy in medieval commentaries, like where does it come from? What is the source, right? Like, is it coming from the Quran itself or is it coming from somewhere else? And, you know, I've reached the conclusion that actually it's coming from, not from the Quran, but it's coming from commentaries on the Quran. And it has to do with not patriarchy, but it has to do with a genealogical tradition of commentaries where one commentary is responding to another. And by responding to that commentary, they're often repeating things that commentator said. And so, for example, what I found, which was actually new information to me, like Al-Zamakhshari, for example, although he was a brilliant uh, mufassir in many ways because of his mastery of Arabic philology and philosophy, what he did is he actually introduces some really patriarchal interpretations of certain ayat. And then I would find verbatim the exact same quotation in Al-Razi, and Al-Baydawi, you know, which you both know are, you know, incredible giants in the field of tafsir and so very much well-read and used in madrasas, you know, in Sunni madrasas throughout the Muslim world historically. And so, you know, if they're repeating this, they're not repeating it because they necessarily believe it, but they're repeating it because that's the way the tradition worked. You repeat it to, to reply to it. And so what I found is that it sort of entrenches it, it entrenches those patriarchal interpretations in a way that might just be incidental. My, my hope is that would be my intervention that, you know, we begin to, to kind of distill and understand, you know, where are these patriarchal ideas coming from? They're not necessarily coming from the tradition as a whole. And I would argue they're definitely not coming from the Quran itself. Um, but rather, if we kind of understand the way the genre itself works, you know, historically and intellectually, then we can begin to untangle that patriarchy that we think is so embedded to the tafsir tradition. Yeah, just to build off that too, thinking about what contribution can our work make to women's studies as well, to gender studies, it's really thinking in nuanced ways about questions of authority. How can we, for instance, be able to say, you know, so-and-so was a phenomenal grammarian, but we cannot take their opinion as reliable when it comes to this or this. And the way that our tradition has worked is sort of putting people up on pedestals as amazing thinkers and polymaths. And, you know, sometimes their work in, you know, Islamic medicine was great, but their work on you know something else was, was not. And so I think if we're able to take how the your work is doing, take what is good and what is beneficial and what is informative, and then allow ourselves to simply discard the things that are not worth you know, repeating or taking into, you know, an, an education on, um, you know, Islamic ethics. You know, in terms of my own engagement with, with women's studies, it's been 
that ability to look at things and recognize certain biases and then be able to say, well, we're moving forward in a different way. And that's something that I think scares a lot of people who are just kind of your mainstream practicing Muslims because so much of our intellectual heritage is about preservation, right? And that's like a framework and we, we don't want to lose anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there does come a point, especially when you're in sort of like an information age where so many things are so readily available to anyone, we really have to kind of come together as contemporary societies and say, no, this is what we're in fact taking forward. And we don't need to preserve things just for for the sake of preserving them. Maybe you call it, you know, constructive Muslim theology or something, but we we need to not simply categorize and, and classify what has previously been. We need to be taking kind of ethical positions on on what should and can be normative in our own age. Thank you, Celine. I, I, I also wanted to add I really agree with you, Hadia, that the power of repetition build a reality. But in terms of how I see both of you or most of us who are like women partaking in Islamic studies, what was happening previously was there was a critical mass, right? Now we need, and there were no women involved in exegetical works. We have Hadith scholars, but we have not had up until the last three or four decades, female Muslim scholars who are looking at are providing us with exegesis. And I think that once we have the critical mass of women doing this, I think that we will be able to change and we'll build on each other's work and we will be able to change what Quranic studies and tafsir is. And Celine, as you were speaking about authority, the question of authority is a huge question, like female authority in Muslim spaces. And I think it's slowly by many of us entering the field and asking for authority, we are slowly changing the face of like what the field looks like. So inshallah and alhamdulillah in the future, there will be a different understanding of these verses that we find kind of problematic because so many of us will have spoken on it. To end the podcast, I wanted to say that your research, both of your research is unprecedented in many ways and it's opening up a new genre of exegesis. What do you hope for in the future of studying women and gender in the Quran? I'm actually thinking a lot about masculinity studies these days. And part of that comes from realizing I, in some ways, reached a limit with what I could say about women in the Quran without also doing robust work on depictions of, of men and masculinity in the, in the Quran. So that's where I'm personally kind of taking taking my work these days. Hadia, what where are you looking for the future? What you mentioned, this idea of having more female voices, I mean that in itself is a game changer in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. and I what I what I really I, I recently read your manuscript, um, rethinking um it, re, it reminded me of the title again, rethinking, rethinking marital and um, sexual ethics in Islamic law, the case of temporary marriage. Yes. Yeah, and no, what I what I actually what struck me about your um, your book, your upcoming book, is the fact that you know you are, for example, like reinstating Aisha as an exegetical authority, you know, in a way in which you point out, you know, and, and it's very much true that yes, you know, they they reference her hadith, but she wasn't necessarily, you know, did not really occupy this space, you know, as an exegetical authority. I think it's interesting that you do this, you know, the idea that. Yeah, there have been female voices in history as well, 
you know, but we don't really label them as a, we didn't really label Sayyida Aisha, you know, um, may Allah be pleased with her, you know, as a, as a mufassira, right? Mm-hmm. And then, I, of course, you're looking at contemporary women as well. But I think just the, just the, the fact of women becoming today, you know, in the 21st century, having more female scholarly voices, I think that in itself is changing uh, the field because now, especially even in, you know, traditional Muslim communities, men are kind of taking notice and needing to, in many ways, engage. They can't ignore it. And I think there's also, it's important to note that there is a, um, uh, what do I want to say, a diversity of male Muslim voices as well within the community. Many of them are very much, yeah, many of them sort of welcome and embrace this change and, you know, bring us to the mosques, for example, and bring us to these traditional spaces where women's voices, at least in the last few (laughs) decades, were sort of not really heard, you know, and I was really happy to see uh, Celine also on a few, you know, webinars with very sort of traditional Muslim audiences as well. I'm very happy to see her work uh, advocated. And I, that that to me shows me that what's happening in academia and Western academia is also making an impact on Muslim communities. And I think as as a Muslim academic, that is really what I would like to see. I'd like, I, I don't want us, I don't want our scholarship to be sort of lost in these ivory towers, but to actually speak and engage with the communities, you know, that we are um, sort of writing about. And I do think, I do think that it does put a lot more pressure on us in the sense that not only do we have to do like, quote unquote, strictly academic work, we also have to make it meaningful because we have come to it from a, a different place than like, let's say, vanilla academia. We've come to it from a place where we want these things to mean something. And we feel like if women's voices are not included, then at least I speak for myself and I look at people around me. Maybe it's a class thing that I feel like religion or Islam could fall off the globe, right? Because it's not like if we don't get involved in the conversation, something is going to break. And so that does put a lot of pressure on us, but maybe that's the blessing. That's what motivates us, keeps us motivated, uh, which is different from being just in like sort of a plain academic ivory tower type space. Yeah, it's so powerful to to think of the ways in which different contemporary Muslim academics like in the U.S. and in other places that have this Western academic tradition, how are we allowed to occupy the space of both serious academics and, you know, people of, of deep spiritual commitments and deep ethical commitments as well? And I think as Muslim, you know, writers who are looking at women and gender, what we're doing is to be able to say, you know, like, I am a, a whole person and I cannot be dissected out into, you know, this is the academic part of me and this is, you know, the humanitarian part of me, that actually those perspectives are informing each other. And that's so much of what I think feminist studies brought to the academy is to say mm-hmm. people write from embedded perspectives. And and but we have to in many ways struggle for that to be the case. And you know, not all institutions are open to you know, people who bring their whole selves to the teaching profession or the writing profession, the research profession. Uh, so it's still a struggle, I think. But there are more and more spaces that are open. 
Absolutely. I mean, I have always felt like even with the whole talk about diversity, Muslims can, for example, ask for space to pray, but they dare not make truth claims, right? Those are two kind of different things. And what we are trying to do in academia is do like both, like make truth claims, bring spirituality to the fore. And it's it's hard again. And I think the solution is critical mass. When we have many of us, we are the first generation of Muslims entering PhD programs and now graduating and doing work, uh, which has not been the tradition in the West. So I have good hope for the future. Um, but I hope or other people's probably terror. But <laughs> <laughs> here we are. So it is. So it is. I, I think that's such a great point, Selena. Uh, you know, and I think in, in many ways your work actually helps create that precedent where others, uh, you know, like myself, you know, could write, you know, or, or, or feel like I could write more authentically, you know, and, and kind of bring awareness, what I think you called the privilege, the, the, the kind of question of power and privilege in Quranic studies, you know, which is a, a reality. But I think by kind of tackling the elephant in the room, you know, you make others of all, you know, faiths and stripes and colors others aware of, you know, this, this is going on. What we want is we want authentic scholarship. You know, we want people, like you said, to bring their full selves to their writing and their teaching, because I think we will have more to offer if we're allowed to do that. You know, and I, I also, um, you know, after reading your work, started to think in terms of my book that I was writing at the time, like, am I in some ways sort of stuck in the state of double consciousness where I am very much aware of the dominant, the way the dominant culture is going to judge my writing. And am I in some ways holding back or saying certain things because of this sort of double consciousness that I'm bringing, you know, uh, to quote W.E.B. Du Bois. So trying to just be, be really authentic and true to who we are. And at the end of the day, you know, I mean, for all of us, we are both Muslim and Western at the same time. You know, I, I very much claim my Western identity. There's no hiding. I mean, I am not, my parents are, you know, from the Middle East, but in terms of my cognitive framework and my socialization, it's very much in, in many ways, you know, it's both Western and Muslim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's just the reality of what it is. And so I think we're also sort of disrupting this dichotomy of thinking of Western and Muslim views as sort of diametrically opposed in some mm-hmm. ways. Thank you, Celine and Hadia. We are all so grateful that you were able to speak to us and uh, we wish you the best in your future endeavors. Thank you again for talking to us. Thank you.